Well, last night we had an event called the Underground Sessions, and if you have not been to an Underground Sessions event, it's an event that we do periodically where we have conversations about difficult uh, cultural topics. Uh, sometimes we delve into the political space as well. Uh, last night we talked about the topic of religious liberty and the disintegration of social discourse. Uh, we had a fabulous panel, and uh, it was one, one of my favorite ones. Uh, hopefully those, those that came were really benefited by it. Um, we also think it's important to continue that conversation sometimes on to Sunday morning, and so that's what we're going to do today. And so to help us do that, I have my friend Jesse Nash with me here. He was one of our panelists. And uh, Dr. Groteis, who was our keynote speaker last night, will come and preach our message this morning. Uh, but before he comes, I'd like just to talk a little bit about the, the legal landscape of religious liberty. And uh, there was a recent study that I read um, that, was, that was talking about a little bit about the conversation we had last night and the civility in the public square. And one thing that they mentioned in the study that I found really interesting was this, uh, that if you have a primary concern for religious liberty, it's often associated with higher levels of civil discourse. And so I think religious liberty is a really important topic, and so I'm going to ask Jesse here, Jesse, why do you think people should care about religious liberty, and also maybe give a little bit about your background. Sure. Hi, everybody. I'm Jesse Nash. I worshiped at Millington for years and years and years. It's so good to be back to see what God's doing here. I hear so many great things. It's nice to come and see it in person. Um, God is really doing great things at Millington, and it's great to see. Um, why is religious liberty important, and how should we be engaged? Um, so as our society gets more and more diverse, more pluralistic, and frankly, as people of faith, uh, you know, the, the demographics are such that there's less people going to church, there's fewer people involved in the Christian life, and they're really subscribed to that worldview. So what the law is trying to do is it's trying to accommodate a more diverse and pluralistic society. And the issue at hand with religious liberty is there's the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which prevents uh, places of a public accommodation from discriminating on the basis of gender, sex and sort of protected classes. And the issue at hand is whether uh, a big cluster of cases are, is whether sexual orientation and gender identity should be a protected class protected in places of public accommodation. That comes into conflict with religious liberty because should Christians be compelled to do things against their conscience as a means of servicing folks who, who are, you know, for, say for, for a gay wedding, a same-sex wedding. So there's cases about, um, you know, uh, bakers and florists and calligraphers who, who, who provide services to the general public, and how should the law treat them? And then on, at the same time, there's a very organized, energetic, well-funded group of folks um, in, the, you know, in the LGBT uh, community who are making an aggressive push in the courts and through the legislative process to get laws passed that compel folks to provide these sorts of services. And, you know, it's a direct conflict should folks be compelled to act against their conscience. And so far, I'm pleased to report that, you know, with this instances of religious liberty, you know, enshrined in the First Amendment, the courts, specifically the Supreme Court, has done a pretty decent job of upholding religious liberty issues. I think it's important that we focus on this because as our society gets more pluralistic, these conversations are going to continue to happen. And we may be on a little bit of a winning streak right now in terms of some of the recent cases, but it's not, it's not always guaranteed to be that way. And uh, people of faith need to get involved and stay informed. Um, and I think that's why it's important. 
Mm. I should have mentioned, I forgot for your intro, Jesse's a lawyer. Um, so, uh, practiced business law Sorry. recently. Yes, I'm a <laughs> I'm, business I'm, lawyer. I missed that in the introduction. But uh, could, could you also say just a little bit more maybe about legislation that's being passed or some other specific cases that people might not be aware of? I'm specifically thinking about that Equality Act and uh, probably a few others. Sure. So, so there's, okay, so there's the, the New Jersey Equality Act. What Equality Act oh, is national. New Jersey okay. is looking at passing a law, I think, in sure. terms of the, the school system. So there, the, the idea in Congress is to pass an Equality Act that specifically makes sexual orientation and gender identity a protected class. Uh, New Jersey has the um, educational law that is, uh, it, it proposes to include a narrative, in, specifically in history, that gives credit to, to folks, uh, LGBT folks, in our history and acknowledges their role in our society and makes that more of a prevalent uh, line of discussion as you go through American history. So, you know, whether and to what extent that's offensive, um, you know, we could, we could have that conversation. But there's, the point is there's an organized, intense um, effort, very well-funded effort to get that conversation, uh, uh, to push that conversation, push those rights forward. And look, I, I, when, when that conflates with, it's one thing to, for, for, for sexual orientation and gender identity rights to be respected in the law. That's that, that, no, no quarrel with me. What happens where, where I really get um, concerned is when that conflicts with religious liberty and people acting uh, in, in a uh, pursuant to religious worldview, a Christ-centered view of reality and morality and how one should live their lives. And when the two conflict, uh, you know, we, a religious liberty has to prevail. Right, and I think there's, there's a, a mindset among some people that uh, in terms of the First Amendment, people are redefining the freedom of religion uh, clause to be freedom of worship, which in some people's minds means as long as you hold those beliefs in your church, sure. that's fine, but as soon as you get out in the public square, that's a problem. And with some of these laws, they're, they're removing the exemptions for religious liberty. Sure, so there's, there's a kind of a minimalistic interpretation of, of religious liberty that tries to say, look, you go in your church, you could believe what you want to believe, you could do what you want to do, fine, that's great, that's enshrined in the First Amendment, you know, go ahead. But when you get into the public sphere, particularly places of public accommodation and public discourse, that's different. And what the Supreme Court's wrestling with is, you know, there's a, there's a masterpiece cake shop case in Colorado, is baking a cake for a gay wedding, an artistic expression where someone's um, a personal um, expression is being put into this thing, and should, the, should there be... Should that be like a free speech issue where the court, the law should compel this person to act in this way, in a way against his conscience, or, or a florist or calligraphers, is, or is it like selling a hamburger where, you know, look, you can't turn people away from your hamburger shop because, you know, they, they happen to disagree with you. You know, and, and courts are struggling with and drawing a, a, a bright line on this. And it's an interesting issue and it's nuanced and there's both, there's two sides to that story. But, but I'm, I'm here to strongly say that in, 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 in cases where somebody's religious principles come into play, they should not be compelled by the government to act against their conscience. And again, so far, courts are upholding that. As demographic trends continue, I don't know that that's always going to be the case. So it's, it's something to be concerned about in the mid to long term. Right. Right, so I've heard some people say that where religious liberty is really bumping up against the culture is this newfound like celebration of sexual liberty. Uh, which you sort of alluded to uh, there. One thing I mentioned in the first service, I think it's important to say that th this for Christians is not, is not really about uh, hating other people, but it is about um, the ability for us to practice a sincerely held religious belief, particularly as it relates to, to some traditional values and biblical, biblical values. Yeah, so 
If Christians are known as a political action group in our culture, they'll be treated like a political action group. If people who are not walking with the Lord view those that are walking with the Lord as just people who disagree with them politically, they're going to interact with us like that, right? So the question is, and the, and the humble suggestion I would make is, as people of faith, we need to engage in the political, to engage in political discussions in the public sphere and let people know who we are and what we believe with confidence and clarity and without apologizing. But at the same time, we're not commanded to tolerate. We're commanded to love. And we should be leading with the love of Christ and having these discussions. We shouldn't be afraid of it. We shouldn't be shying away from it. We should be humble about it. We're going to hear more about, about engaging as a, as, a, as a citizen of heaven and a citizen of earth in a minute. Uh, but it's important that these conversations happen because there, was, there are legitimate issues, historical grievances folks have with the church and, and, and hypocrisy and judgment and uh, a lack of Christ's love. And we need to engage with folks in a way where they could, they, they could have a better perspective of a, of a savior who preached about love and about being a peacemaker and was a great example of how to engage in, in, in political discourse. So um, if you missed the event last night, uh, one of the things I want to draw your attention to this morning, and it's also listed in the bulletin, we have started a brand new podcast called the Underground Sessions Podcast. Um, so this is an opportunity for us to go further in the conversations that we're having at these events. I have three uh, things up already, and actually I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward because we do have uh, some things we want to pass out just to draw your attention to this. Uh, there's a card with the Underground Session Podcast info, and on the back it also has info about Trunk or Treat. Um, but I have, three, I have three episodes up. One is dealing with the opioid crisis. I interviewed Andy Williams, who's the director of Communities in Crisis. Um, I interviewed Harish Rada about gene editing, uh, Amy Huber about abortion, so you want to check out those episodes. The audio from our event last night will be posted to the podcast this week, so if you are interested in this topic but you weren't able to come, uh, I definitely in encourage you to go check out uh, the podcast links on our website, or you can uh, subscribe to them on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or iHeartRadio. Uh, so, Jesse, one final question before uh, we invite Dr. Groteis up to speak to us this morning. What are some cases that we really should just be um, focusing on and on the lookout for in the coming, coming year? Do you have some specific ones that we should look at? Sure. So there's, there's cases being decided about whether and to what extent a hospital be, should, should be compelled to provide services and, and, and procedures that the, a religiously affiliated hospital does not agree with as a matter of, of its policy. Whether, that should, whether the courts have a role and the government has a role in making them, uh, compelling them to provide these services. Mm -hmm. um, there's also a continually litigation uh, in, in place of a public accommodation. And there's a well-funded, very well-organized uh, movement in the LGBT community to fund these, these lawsuits, to press for litigation on the state and federal level. And the courts are gonna continually be dealing with this. The courts have signaled this coming year uh, one of the things about First Amendment law and the extent, the extent of religious liberty is that the law out there is kind of a hot mess. Every Supreme Court case kind of contradicts the one before, and it's very difficult to get a, a clear, bright-line rule for a lot of these things. And the court has very clearly signaled that it wants to do something about that. So be prayerful, be informed, be engaged uh, with that process, because it's going to be interesting over the next year or two. Okay. Well, thanks so much for just giving us the landscape, Jesse. We appreciate that. Um, our keynote speaker last night was Dr. Doug Groteis, who actually is one of my seminary professors from Denver Seminary, where I got my Master of Divinity. And uh, I just want to give a little introduction to him, and then he's going to be uh, preaching our message this morning. So Douglas Groteis is professor of philosophy at Denver Seminary, 
where he heads the Apologetics and Ethics Master of Arts program. He's the author of 12 books, including Christian Apologetics, Philosophy in Seven Sentences, and Walking Through Twilight. His articles have been published in dozens of journals and periodicals, including Philosophia Christi, Academic Questions, and the Journal of Christian Legal Thought. So would you join me in welcoming Dr. Doug Groteis. Well, good morning, everyone. My wife Kathleen and I are very honored to be in this historic church where the gospel has been preached now for, what, 160 years. Wonderful thing. We've also enjoyed the historical dimension of this part of the country. We went to the George Washington uh, Historical Museum yesterday, went into his uh, quarters that he was in for several years during the war. So I'm very happy to be here. And of course, Pastor Bob was one of my students. And uh, you can get a seminary degree with a C minus average. I just wanted you to know. <clears throat> of course, he was not that person. But I just wanted you to know. <laughs> so the title of our message, really following up from last night, is Seeking the Welfare of the City, a Biblical View of Citizenship. And I'll be reading some passages from Jeremiah 29, so you may want to turn there, but I have a number of passages to work through. So as we think about citizenship, what does it mean to be a citizen? It means to be a resident who is authorized with certain rights, who has certain benefits, and certain responsibilities. And what we'll see in this message from Scripture is that followers of Christ, his disciples, are both citizens of heaven and citizens of this world. And we'll be explaining the meaning of that, the rights, benefits, and responsibilities of this dual citizenship but in order to understand citizenship, we first of all need to consider the one who grants us heavenly citizenship in his grace, the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me quote the Apostle Paul about what it means to be a follower of Christ. He says in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And then in Romans 10.9, he goes on to say that if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So we have the external confession. We have the internal belief. The Spirit-led confession is based on Christ's matchless achievements in his perfect, sinless life, his atoning for sin, death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension, and his enthronement at the right hand of the Father. So his followers confess and believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's not merely Lord of my heart or a church, this church. He's actually the Lord of the entire universe. So the great Dutch statesman, theologian, philosopher, Abraham Kuyper, who lived from 1837 to 1920, said this, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine, mine. 
And then another quote by a man who's influenced me tremendously, Francis Schaeffer, who lived from 1912 to 1984, said this in his book, A Christian Manifesto. True spirituality covers all of reality. There are things the Bible tells us as absolutes which are sinful, which do not conform to the character of God. But aside from these things, the Lordship of Christ covers all of life and all of life equally. It is not only that true spirituality covers all of life, but it covers all parts of the spectrum of life equally. In this sense, there is nothing concerning reality that is not spiritual. So we don't want to say we have spiritual values here and secular values here, or we have the reign of Christ here, but Christ is not really Lord here. Everything is under the comprehensive lordship of Jesus Christ. There's not a square inch of creation over, Christ, over which Christ does not say mine. All of life is spiritual and should be engaged as such. We recognize this divine reality and rightly relate ourselves to the lordship of Christ as his disciples, followers, students, and worshipers as we are led by the Holy Spirit. So to be a Christian means to be born again of the Holy Spirit See Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus in John 3, for example. We are declared not guilty. We are justified through the work of Christ, having been his enemies. We are now his friends through the love of God. We're united with Christ in this deep, wonderful way. We become members of the body of Christ. We become temples of the Holy Spirit and so much more. The metaphor, and really more than a metaphor I want to work with, primarily is the idea of citizenship. A citizen is granted by an authority certain rights and has certain responsibilities and benefits. Scripture refers to us as citizens of heaven. But until our home going, we remain citizens of earth as well. So I want to talk about this dual citizenship under the comprehensive lordship of Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Paul says this in Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, but we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives and we are eagerly awaiting for him to return as our savior. He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. So we are present tense citizens of heaven where Christ reigns. And in light of that present tense reality, we eagerly await the fulfillment of all things, the resurrection of our bodies, the restoration and purgation of the universe where the reign of God will be recognized by all, where every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Yet, we remain in this world. This world is en route to the future world that Paul speaks of. So the Lord Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, 13 and 14, says this, after giving the Beatitudes, the blessings, the really happiness of those who follow Christ. You are the salt of the earth, 
But what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. Notice again that present tense reality. You are the salt of the earth. We await more. We are citizens of heaven. We await the coming where heaven and earth will be one, so to speak. But right now we are salt, and salt is a preservative to save things from putrefaction, from rotting, and is also a spice to bring out the good flavor of the things of this world. Secondly, you are the light of the world, Jesus says, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. So light exposes darkness, light illuminates truth. We are to be salt and light as citizens of heaven under the total lordship of Jesus Christ. So Christianity, among all the religions and philosophies of the world, is perfectly otherworldly and perfectly thisworldly. And let me go into another dimension of this. The kingdom of God in Scripture is referred to as something that has come in a new dimension of power and greatness through the ministry of Jesus. Jesus said, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, you should know the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's in Matthew 12. So it is here, now. It's not awaiting completely the second coming of Christ. And I have some other scriptures there. So right now we have the power of the kingdom of God. We have a perspective on the world given to us by scripture, and we can exercise a biblical faith and do good works. However, the Lord's calling someone. I wish that he would answer. Um, <laughs> there is a not yet or an anticipatory aspect to the kingdom of God. I've already alluded to it, but there are other passages on this, like 1 Corinthians 15, 24, 2 Timothy 4, 1, and others. We are citizens of heaven now, and we eagerly await the fulfillment when all things will be put to rights. So this gives us such a perspective on life. We have hope, and biblically, hope is not something I merely wish for. It's the settled certainty of the things that are to come. So the hope of the fulfillment is as certain as the atoning death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, the, session, the ascension of Christ. We wait, and we don't seek the fulfillment of the kingdom of God in this world. We seek as much gospel presentation, as much belief, good works, justice, peace, as we possibly can in this world. But we know that all of our efforts will be incomplete because we are incomplete. We know that we won't find perfection in this world before the second coming of Jesus. However, because we know Christ is coming and because we know he has come, and we know the dynamic of God's kingdom is set loose in the world, we can work with diligence and hope, and we don't have to be discouraged. Because as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, our labor in the Lord is not in vain. And he says that in that passage in light of the resurrection of Jesus and the certainty of the resurrection of the body. His resurrection having occurred already, in space-time history in ancient Palestine, about 33 AD, and then 
his second coming and our resurrection unto a new world wherein righteousness perfectly dwells and every tear is taken away and the curse is pushed back. This kingdom and this citizenship is an upside-down, inside-out sort of thing. Jesus tells us that the meek will inherit the earth. The first shall be last. So Christ and his kingdom, knowing that we are citizens of heaven under his lordship, gives us a perspective on the world that we could not find otherwise. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth and the spirit of the gifts and the fruit that he has come to give. And I found this statement by Blaise Pascal, the 17th century philosopher and scientist, to be very helpful in terms of the vantage point that followers of Christ have in relation to the broader culture, the nation, the world. In his book, Ponsais, or Thoughts, he says, When everything is moving at once, nothing appears to be moving, as on board ship. When everyone is moving towards depravity, no one seems to be moving. But if someone stops, he shows up the others who are rushing on by acting as a fixed point. So in Christ, in the gospel, we have a fixed point of truth to evaluate the world. When the culture is becoming insane in matters of sexuality and materialism and so many things, we have a standard. We can serve as fixed points in as much as we are honoring Jesus Christ as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, in as much as we are true to our heavenly citizenship in accord with the rights and the benefits and the responsibilities of being citizens of heaven and belonging to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. But we still live in the kingdoms of this world. So we need an ethic for, as it were, exiles who are citizens of heaven and citizens of the earth. Now, I'm going to read something from Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7. This is something spoken to God's people when they're taken into exile into Babylon. So they didn't have as much religious freedom as we do. They were inhibited in their expression of worship and faith. However, God tells them that they can still thrive. So, verse 4 of Jeremiah 29. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number. Do not decrease. Verse 7. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So these are people under judgment. They're exiles. But God says, thrive where you are. Build up your families. Pray for the welfare or the shalom of the city. The city prospers, you too will prosper. Now, the same image of being exiled is given by the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. 
Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So even if you are exiles in a tough situation, in a worldly setting, don't be like the worldly people. Stay sane, stay righteous by knowing the fixed point of Jesus Christ and testifying to him and to the scriptures as the fixed point, which gives us our point of reference for all of life. Now, the exiles in Babylon didn't have the kind of religious freedom and opportunity that we do. So how much more should we thrive and seek and pray for the welfare of the city? How much more should we build up our families and our communities and our church in the things of God, thus honoring both our heavenly citizenship and our earthly citizenship? So let's talk about some ways to engage this dual citizenship our citizenship in heaven and on earth. We can actually bring the kingdom to heaven to bear on earth through love, our loving citizenship. God so loved the world, he sent his only son that whoever would believe on him might not perish but have everlasting life. And then God sends us into the world as emissaries of love. So think again of citizenship. We have the rights, benefits, and responsibilities of the heavenly city, the heavenly kingdom, and we are still citizens on earth. So we have the right to become the children of God. The Apostle John says that in John 1. Those who believe in him and receive him can become the children of God. And we have the benefit of having our sins forgiven and being reconciled to God, being justified through the grace of God that we receive by faith alone. And then we have the responsibility to be salt, to be light, to bring the truth into the world. And this is really the truth acted out in love, in the wholeness of life. Jesus says in John 13, 34 and 35, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another, this radical love. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So as we are unified, as we care for each other's physical needs, as we are hospitable, inviting people into our home, not just people just like us, but people who are underserved or underprivileged or discriminated against, as we stand and serve the community, we show a radical love, the love of citizens of heaven. We are citizens of heaven, and the one who has given us heaven, the one from heaven, is the one that has demonstrated this love through his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and he is at the right hand of God, and he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And his kingdom Shall not, be shaken, shall not be shaken, and we will not be forsaken. So in a culture that is becoming insane with matters of sexuality and identity, in a culture of 
rampant selfishness and self-promotion, we, in the power of the Spirit, under the Lordship of Christ, can be different. We can be people of restraint, of self-control, radical giving, radical hospitality, radical service, and find such a deeper sense of meaning and joy in that than merely trying to gratify our little shabby selves. We can love outsiders. Not just they shall know you by the love you have in the church for the Christian. Yes, indeed. But how do we love those who are not part of the church, who do not identify as believers? So we have events like this wonderful Halloween event you have coming, trunk or treat. And hundreds I've heard have come to this. Not all of them are people that attend this church or attend any church. Maybe they don't believe in God at all. What a wonderful opportunity to show the love that you have to show as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, to testify of the goodness of Jesus Christ. And a tremendous opportunity to be redemptive in a holiday that is really not very holy, usually, and which can be quite dark and disturbing. So instead of just condemning the darkness, let's shine a light and be a part of that. And any sort of activity that brings this gospel of the kingdom to bear on the kingdoms of this world. Jesus taught us to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. We are also told in the Sermon on the Mount to not merely love our neighbor, but to love our enemy and to pray for those who persecute us and to turn the other cheek and go the second mile. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, this is an extraordinary ethic that is not simply just getting along with people and being a nice person. It's relying on the power of the cross and the Holy Spirit to do extraordinary good works for the glory of God, to be citizens of heaven that bring heaven to bear on earth and good, life-giving citizens in this community, in this state, in this nation. So I suggest that we engage biblically and we drop the idea of being participants or warriors in a culture war. Now, I'm kind of an old guy, actually. Of course, you wouldn't know by looking at me. But I am 62, and I've been around for a long time. Uh, I remember when the moral majority was the major political force in evangelical Christianity and some aspects of Judaism and so on. I remember when the new right was new back in the 70s and so on. And I've seen this mentality in this language of a culture war. And I know why people have mentioned that, because there is a conflict of worldviews between a Judeo-Christian perspective of the world and morality and social institutions and a secular view, or what is sometimes called, a, wrongly, a progressivist view. So there is a contest there. But we don't want to engage just the way every other political participant or activist or politician engages. We are, you remember, citizens of heaven. And we have the rights and the opportunities and the benefits and the possibilities and the responsibilities of citizens of heaven. So it doesn't mean we opt out and we get into a holy huddle and we don't engage the world. No, we engage on everything that is significant because there's not one square inch of creation over which Christ does not say Lord. And everything is a spiritual 
matter. Well, what about warfare? You say, Scripture's full of the metaphors of war and putting on the full armor of God. Yes, but the warfare language is used for engaging the spiritual powers of darkness, that is, the demonic, the devilish realm. The language used for persuading people and being salt and light is that of gentleness and love, with a backbone, but love. So let me read Ephesians 6, 12 here from the Apostle Paul, something of an authority on spiritual warfare. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So he says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's these spiritual powers of darkness, and we engage them through prayer, through fasting, for hiding the word in our heart, by not being worldly, by being filled with the Spirit, by joining forces with other followers of Christ and like-minded people. We do not wage war on unbelievers. We love unbelievers. So this is what Paul says in Romans 12, 14 through 18. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. So be humble. I'll come back to that in a minute. Verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So this is a challenging tension, isn't it? We do wage war spiritually by praying and fasting and knowing the scripture and taking our stand, putting on the full armor of God, Ephesians 6, 10 through 19. We know we have an enemy, the devil, who prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone he can devour. But what does Paul say about dealing with people? We're gentle, we're kind, we're loving, we want to be at peace in as much as it is possible. So when we enter the domain of cultural activity, we don't enter as warriors, we enter as people of love and respect and gentleness who, yes, have a backbone, the backbone that we have as citizens of heaven, the backbone shown by Jesus Christ through his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension. We have a backbone. Let me give you a parable that I think is very instructive for how we engage our culture as citizens of heaven because we are also citizens of this earth. I think it's the shortest parable in the Gospels. This is Matthew 13, 33. Jesus told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and mixed into three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. Then he moves on. Now this is not the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. This is the good leaven. This is the leaven that's worked into the dough to make it the kind of bread that it should be. So the kingdom of God is something that gets worked into, of course, the church and gets worked into the world to make it as it should be. 
So that image is much more peaceful, much more uh, flavorful than the idea of war. Now, there is this aspect of war in the spiritual level, but let's do justice to all the metaphors, all the imperatives, all the images, the visions that the Scripture gives us. So he says the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and mixed into three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. Now, obviously, all of culture, all of the world is not leavened with the gospel and the truths of Scripture. So we have work to do. The world needs the truth of the gospel. So I want to focus here on biblical truth, the truth of the gospel and everything in the Bible as leaven for our culture, truth needed in education, in politics, in law, in the arts, in the church, everywhere. We need truth because Jesus said it is only his truth that will make us free. The very concept of truth is challenged by many people in our culture. I've written about this for years, but let me emphasize three aspects of biblical truth that need to be underscored. First, truth is objective, not merely subjective. So Christ is Lord whether or not you believe it. He is Lord. He died on the cross to atone for our sins as the Lamb of God. He was buried. He rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven. That is simply true, whether or not anybody believes it. So, Romans 3, 4 says, Let God be true, though everyone be a liar. Truth is objective. Secondly, truth, and I'm speaking here of the great truths of the gospel, but I could extend this. Truth is absolute, not relative. Absolutes have no exceptions. So Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. That is a statement of absolute. It is unconditional. It's not relative. It relates to every person, but is not dependent on the belief of any person. Now, your salvation, in a sense, is dependent on how you respond to Jesus, his finished work on the cross for you. But the truth of his finished work is simply true. And we are welcomed to accept it as true, confess it with our lips, believe it in our heart, that we may be saved. Thirdly, biblical truth is not only objective and absolute, it is universal. It relates to the entire world. And I was talking to Kathleen earlier, earlier this morning, looking at the photos of the missionaries. And I said, the Southern Baptists are so strong on missions, the support of missionaries. We take this message of the gospel to the entire world. Why? Because it's not parochial. It's not just for Americans or for one race or just for another race. This is the truth that needs to go everywhere to everyone. So it is not provincial or parochial. Think of what the Apostle Peter said. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is one name given under heaven to all humanity by which we must be saved. So our culture that is moving towards depravity in some ways needs people of truth. And I want to specify for you the humble prophet. And I don't mean a prophet with a capital P like Jeremiah or Isaiah or New Testament prophets. I mean someone who has a prophetic sensibility that you can speak needed truth to the world and to the church in whatever setting, whatever calling God has given you. We need people who can give a reasonable and prophetic and intelligent voice to the things that are happening in society. 
So first of all, the humble prophet, who is a citizen of heaven and a citizen of earth, and understands something of the rights, the benefits, and the responsibilities of such, knows his or her culture. I think of 1 Chronicles 12, 32, a little verse hidden away in a genealogy, but so powerful. The tribe of Issachar that understood the times and knew what Israel should do. So we should be able to read the signs of the times, understand people's concept of God, of spirituality, of morality, and so on, so we know how to speak the truth of Scripture into that situation. And of course, I assumed in my first point that we know, secondly, the truths of Scripture. We can bring the living and active word to bear on the world. We hide the word in our heart that we might not sin against God. We realize that Scripture is God-breathed, as we just read this morning. Third, the humble prophet knows him or herself before the audience of God. God knows all. God knows the depths of our being. So we want to live lives of integrity and walking with the Lord, keeping short accounts with the Lord. So we need to know our culture, know the scripture, know ourselves before the audit of eternity, as Soren Kierkegaard put it. And then we need to have a cool head, a warm heart, and fire in our bones. A cool head meaning we're not, obviously, hotheads. We don't just mouth off. And I'm kind of a recovering, at least social media, hothead. And the Lord spoke to me about that, especially after the 2016, the, the 2016 election. I just was uh, too loud and uh, was voicing too many opinions in kind of a bad way. So I'm a recovering uh, hothead, and I'll probably recover until I keep recovering until I see the Lord. But we need a cool head, but we need a warm heart to care for people, to approach the world with this redeeming love. Yes, love with a backbone, but love that is patient and kind, is not arrogant or boastful. But then fire in our bones. Jeremiah said, I wanted to hold the message in, but I couldn't because I had fire in my bones and it had to come out. So pray that the Lord gives you holy fire to bring the truths of the, the kingdom of God to earth, that your citizenship from heaven will have profound implication for your citizenship on earth. We need to speak the truth in love. If we have truth without love, we tend to be narrow, dogmatic, belligerent. We have love without truth. We can become mushy and sentimental. So the Bible strikes the perfect balance. We can speak the truth in love. And in the Greek, it means more than speak. It means to live out or radiate or emanate truth in love. And we do this through the Spirit. So sixth, the humble prophet wants to accomplish all of these things only through the supernatural agency of the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of truth, the comforter, who gives us power and love and courage through the gifts and through the fruits of his work. So I would summarize our citizenship by saying that if we have come to Christ on his terms, we've received the gospel as true, we believe it, we receive him as Lord and Savior, then there are certain rights, benefits, and responsibilities of the heavenly citizenship. And I've only just glancingly addressed them. But then God puts us here as a kind of exile. But here in the United States, 
we have tremendous opportunities, freedom, we have freedom of speech and association, freedom of religion, and we should make the most of it, but as we engage with the present power and mission of the kingdom of God under the lordship of Christ, we need to be different kinds of people. That is, we don't want to be conceited. We want to be gentle, but speak truth in love. We want to see our whole culture change, but not through power politics, not through propaganda, not through manipulation, intimidation. We want rather to be a sweet savor of our Lord Jesus Christ in this world and to be salt and to be light. And we await with great confidence the fulfillment of the kingdom when Christ comes again. We don't have to be terribly frustrated when our plans don't go perfectly well. We continue to work and to pray. Jesus gave a parable, and at the end of it, he said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? And if we are faithful to our dual citizenship, and if we are filled with the Holy Spirit, and we have fire in our bones, and a cool head, and a warm heart, then when the Son of Man comes, or when we go to him, he will find faith. And I pray that your faith is a world-changing faith. It may not be through what the world considers big or significant things, but as you submit to the cross of Christ, the power of Christ's resurrection, the Holy Spirit, then you will change at least part of the world. You will be changed for the better, and so will your family, and so will your neighborhood. So will your influence be. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful to be citizens of heaven, as Paul says. Lord, may we be true to that citizenship with its rights, its benefits, its responsibilities, Lord. And may we be true to our earthly citizenship. May we bring heaven to earth through truth, Lord. May we be humble prophets who know the culture, know ourselves, and know you and know that apart from you, we can do nothing. So, Lord, I pray your blessing on this church. Lord, as we think about your death, your resurrection, your second coming in communion, would you please drive these truths more deeply into our souls? We pray in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's stand, church. Closing song, God of the City. Thank you.